You know, when I was growing up, I used to like to read Agatha Christie novels, those kind of mystery novels that you don't know how it's going to twist and turn, and you, you read it, and you think you have a bead on what's going on, and, and all of a sudden it twists, and you don't, you don't see it coming, and it's always a, a kind of a, a, a great, satisfying surprise at the very end. Well, you were, Paul is kind of laying out for us this mystery of how God is going to bring about the consummation of all things. It really is a passage about the very end of things, about how he's going to wrap up his creation, his salvation, how he's going to bring about redemption in its fullness to the world. Uh, when you look at the passage, it's a, it's a confusing passage. It's got metaphors. It's got pictures that are very difficult to understand and that a lot of people see different things in. So I want to try to keep it as simple as I can. I, I want to look at the passage in two parts. The first part, 11 to 16, is really where Paul is unfolding this plan. Uh, he's kind of revealing to us how God is working to really reclaim his creation. He, it's how God is bringing about salvation to all his people, drawing them to himself until the very end. So he's going to unfold this mystery of God. And then in 17 to 22, you see this, this response to it. it kind of he gives us some practical attitudes, responses of the heart of the Christian as he waits for these things to reach their fulfillment. So the first is kind of an unfolding of the mystery of God. And then, and then, of course, the second part is like a marveling over the mystery of God. And then I'll have some application in the midst of it. So, so look at with me in verse 11, because you see this first step, if you will, of the unfolding. How is God bringing about? He's really going to try to initially answer the question, why is God doing all this hardening of hearts? You know, it, it almost seems kind of harsh that he would be hardening their hearts. Well, he begins to, to kind of unfold this for us in verse 11 you see he says did they stumble in order that they might fall he says by no means that was the same question in verse in verse 1 rather through their trespass salvation has come to the gentiles so through the trespass that means through the rejection of israel uh, salvation has gone to the gentiles uh, in other words god hardened the heart of israel the people rejected Christ, that was part of God's plan, so that salvation, redemption, would go to the ends of the world. This is God's plan. This is the mysterious nature of God's plan. He intended a hardening on Israel so that it would press the gospel to the very ends of the world. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 21. You see him say, when he's speaking to the Pharisees, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. It's going out. In other words, God brought about a hardness on Israel. They reject the Messiah. So the gospel now goes to Gentiles. The Gentiles hear the gospel. They turn from their idolatry, and they're saved. And this is exactly what you see in the book of Acts. You, know, you see the church birthed in Jerusalem, and these ethnic Jews pouring in, but it's in the midst of great adversity and really rejection of the Jewish people. And where does it go? It goes out. And Jesus said that in Acts chapter 1, 8. He said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the world. In other words, Paul understood this hardening giving birth to 
evangelism of the world. Even in Acts 13, we read, Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. He's speaking in the synagogue. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So the first step of this unfolding is a hardening upon Israel was with the divine intention of the gospel going to all the nations. Okay, now look at the second step of this unfolding. You see it there in the end of verse 11. He says, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. You see the same thing in 13 and 14 where Paul's speaking about his own ministry and he says, I'm apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So Paul sees his very own ministry as going to the Gentiles so that as the Gentiles come into the faith, that the Jews will be stirred or awoken, the Israel will be awoken to consider their Messiah. In other words, it's the joy of the Gentiles over forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, adoption. It's in their joy <clears throat> that will make Israel jealous and look back to their Messiah. It's these Gentiles who are happy in God. They're happy. They're satisfied. They're part of the covenant of Abraham. They're part of the promises of God. They've been reconciled to God. And in their joy, Israel will see that and be drawn. It's like a powerful magnet, kind of lifting the particles of metal out of the sand. It kind of being drawn to the happiness of the Gentiles. But look at the third step. The third step is there found in both 12 and, and, and 15. <clears throat> you have the hardening of Israel uh, leading to the salvation or the turning of the Gentiles. Then step two, you have the turning of the Gentiles, which leads to the envying. And, and when we speak of envy, usually we mean that in a negative way. You know, this, you know to be jealous or to be envious is a bad thing. It's, it's bad when the object is bad. If you, if you envy a person because of their holiness or their fortitude or their strength of character and you want to emulate that, that's, that's, a, that's a godly jealousy, really. You know, in fact, elders are called to be desirous. It's a godly ambition, he says. Uh, so, so the jealousy of Israel is toward the joy of the Gentiles. But the third unfolding there is in 12. Look what he says. He says, Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, then how much more will their full inclusion mean? In other words, all those being drawn in, all of Israel. In 15, he says, For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, this is parallel to it, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So what Paul's saying is, listen, here's how it's going to happen. Israel's going to be hardened, and then, and then the gospel's going to go to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are going to believe, and in their joy, they're going to draw Israel back to faith. And then at that point, there will be great, spectacular joy. It will be like life from the dead. He's saying that at the full inclusion of all those whom God has chosen, there will be great rejoicing. It's the end of all things. It's the hardening of Israel. The unbelief of Israel leads to the belief of the Gentiles. The belief of the Gentiles 
leads to the belief of Israel, and then all things are wrapped up and ushering in new heavens and new earth. It will be like life from the dead. That's what he's saying. Probably looking to the resurrection day. There's some debate, but probably looking to the resurrection day where all things will be made right. All things, all people of God will be satisfied and finding God absolutely glorious. So it's kind of that threefold unfolding, this hardening of Israel, the believing of the Gentiles, and the drawing back of Israel. Okay, so what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Because it's, it's the end times, if you will, from a very high view. Well, first off, I want you to see that God is gathering a new people. And, and that's us right here. God's gathering a new people. Now, let me try to dip back into this Israel connection here. And I'm asking you to hang with me here, because, again, this is swimming back in some deep waters. When Paul speaks about Israel... He speaks about it in ethnic terms in some places, where when he speaks about Israel, he's speaking about the physical descendants of Abraham. Uh, they are children of Abraham, physical. Other places, he speaks about Israel in more spiritual terms. In other words, that, that the spiritual descendants of Abraham, those who believe like Abraham believed. This may be Jew or Gentile. This is a spiritual Israel. We talked about it last week in terms of this idea of a remnant. Do you remember how Paul in chapter 9 said not all Israel belongs to Israel? He says not all the descendants of Abraham are children of promise. What he was saying is that there is an Israel, a true Israel, within the greater ethnic Israel. This true Israel are the children of God that have been chosen by his own mercy and grace. I think when he's speaking here uh, about Israel and about the inclusion of all Israel, I think he's speaking about a spiritual Israel, not a physical Israel. I think he speaks about those whom God has foreknown. Why do I say this? This is where you need to buckle up a little bit. And I talked to Miguel Echeverria, kind of a, a resident New Testament theologian uh, who helped bring clarity to what I was seeing. Um, not me, but many before. Uh, this is not new by any stretch. But I want to remind you, back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates Adam and Eve, and they're with him in the garden. They're his people. And of course, they sin, and they get pushed out of the garden, right? They're now in the wilderness. They're now in the chaos apart from God. And, and we see that in chapter 4, Cain kills Abel. We see it in chapter 5, everybody dies. We see it in chapter 6, the place just goes to ruin, and God actually brings judgment upon the world through the flood. But he raises up Noah, and he actually commands Noah to be fruitful and multiply. He uses the same language that he does with Adam. So Noah is kind of a recreation here. It's like starting over again. But we find that we're in the same place. And you, you follow out chapters 8, 9, and 10. It leads us to chapter 11, where life outside of Eden is chaos. I mean, you have the Tower of Babel, men and women trying to get together and, and mount an offense to God. God comes down and he confuses the language. But what you find in chapter 11 of Genesis is a people that are completely a mess. They're lost from God. They, 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 they are trying to make their way, and they're not doing well at it. And here God has his whole creation outside of Eden. 
He didn't he he put them in Eden. They're outside of Eden in the wilderness in the chaos. And what does God do in chapter 12? Well, he raises up Abraham. Abraham is going to save the nations. All the nations, all the Gentile nations. There were no ethnic Jews. And by the way, Abraham wasn't an ethnic Jew. Abraham was the land from Ur. He, he, he was a Gentile. The father of the Jews was a Gentile. So you see Abraham being raised up to save the nations. Now, it's not Abraham, obviously. It's the seed of Abraham. Uh, the children that Abraham have are ethnic Israel. And they fail and fail and fail. They break the covenant repeatedly. But there's one ethnic Israelite that kept the covenant, that kept all the commands, and that was Jesus. In Jesus, he is the seed of Abraham, is the salvation of all men and women in Christ. So when you go to the book of Romans, and you go in the first three chapters, you see the same picture as the first 11 chapters in Genesis. You see, what do you find? All have fallen short of the glory of God. Jew, Gentile, religious, irreligious, the place is in chaos. Chapter 1, we read about that. Men are pursuing their own ways. They're burning with lust for one another. You see it in chapter 2, even the religious Jews, they're lost. Chapter 3, it ends up, we've all fallen short. And then there's Jesus. Jesus is our propitiation. He's our salvation. What happens in chapter 4 of Romans is you're reintroduced to Abraham again. Reminding us, Paul's saying, the faith of Abraham, having a faith like Abraham, saves. It's not ethnicity, it's spirituality, it's faith in Jesus. So when Paul's coming here to chapter 9, 10, and 11, he's trying to kind of recast our understanding of what it means to be Israel. It means to have the faith in Abraham, the faith of Abraham, which is faith in a Messiah, not driven by ethnicity or lineage, but faith in Christ. So I think when he's saying that the Israel is going to return, it's going to be all those who have faith in Christ. So we don't look now at terms of Israel in ethnic ways. Let me just quote to you just a, a brief quote from a New Testament scholar, Douglas Moo. He says, The turn of the ages at the coming of Christ brought an important development in the people of God. The ethnic makeup of that people changed radically. God extended his grace in vastly increased measure to the Gentiles. But Paul's metaphor warns us to not view this transition as a transition from one people of God to another. In other words, the Gentiles or the Jews to the Gentiles. He says Gentiles who come to Christ become part of that community of salvation founded on God's promises to the patriarchs, Abraham, and the Messianic Jews following in the footsteps of their believing ancestors, belong to the same community. So Paul suggests that the church, defined as the entire body of believers in Jesus Christ, is simply the name for the people of God in this era of salvation history, as Israel was the name of that people in the previous age. So there's continuity. The remnant continues, and it's through faith in Christ. So we're part of that new Israel. That's God is gathering a people no longer in Abraham or ethnicity, but now in Christ. We are in Christ. That's what makes us one. That's the regathering of all those whom God has chosen. Now, I'm happy to talk about this with you later. If it causes great confusion, I know this is, it's heavy. 
Uh, but it's important to understand who we are in trying to understand these chapters. Uh, the second thing I would make clear to you about this unfolding of mystery, and this is a little more practical, is that God does work in mysterious ways. I mean, I, mean, I want you to understand, I want you to break the paradigm of how God works. God works in different ways. You see it here, through the trespass, salvation went to the Gentiles. God uses even the sin of Israel in their rejection to bring about salvation to the Gentiles. This isn't new to us, though. If you think about Joseph, the sins of Joseph's brother were woven into God's plan to raise up Joseph to be the second in charge at Egypt so as to save the nation. You see it even in the cross of Christ, right? The sins of the religious leaders and the sins of the Roman authorities who crucified Christ was used for the furtherance of God's salvation to the world. God's ways are inscrutable. His ways are beyond tracing out. God can even use our brokenness to advance his good purposes before us. So there is no situation that you're in, so dire, so dark, that he cannot achieve and advance his purposes. There is no person so hopeless, so hardened, so antagonistic to the gospel that God cannot use his spirit to bring about his purposes. I was reminded of this Luke Short. You don't know the name. Uh, he was a man in the 18th century. He was a farmer up in New England. And uh, he actually was born in Dartmouth, England, and traveled to America uh, in many of the movements from England. And uh, he lived to 100 years of age. He was 100 years old and full of health. It was in his 100th year that he was sitting in a field contemplating his life. And it was then that he remembered a sermon preached. He felt the conviction of God's spirit, that he was under the curse of God, and that salvation was only by Christ. And he turned by faith at 100 years of age and believed. The sermon was preached by John Flavel 85 years before in Dartmouth, England. And 85 years later, the truth of that sermon came to his mind and he was saved from his sins. There's nothing God can't do. He works in crazy ways. It's just mysterious ways. We have to remember that when you're in the midst of an issue and you think, where is God in this? He has the authority. He can bring about a hardening and an opening and an opening and an opening of these people. God does as he pleases, and it will be good. Thirdly, I would say to you, a truth of this unfolding, a truth would be that, that God uses your joy to advance his name to the nations. Uh, evangelism isn't to be done simply, you know, sometimes I think we look at evangelism as kind of somewhat analogous to a door-to-door -door salesman, kind of the strong-arm tactics that we have to bring them to a point of decision. I would say that's not so. At least in this text, one of the means which God uses to deliver people is through the joy of those who have been saved. Uh, as you consider the forgiveness that you've had, the deliverance of your sin, the removal of the shame, the lifting of the burden of guilt. And as you've come to an understanding of all the riches that you have in Jesus Christ, 
As your heart and your mind dwells on the loveliness of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, the beauty of Christ, there is a joy that is to be part of our lives, regardless of what happens. How, how many people know about the joy? I don't mean a giddiness, by the way. I mean a satisfaction. I mean a, a contentment that comes by faith in Christ. How many know that that is present in your life? This is really what's to be declared and to be displayed to people. In other words, how does the joy of your forgiveness, of your sins, how does that offer hope to those who are burdened by sin? Or, or how does your steadfastness in times of trial, how does that offer hope to people that are facing struggles? Or how does your generosity, uh, being loose with the things of this world, offer hope to those who are bound in materialism? Or how does your longing for Jesus Christ your desire to see him, your longing to be with him. How does that offer hope to people who are facing death or facing great, the end issues of life? I shared before when I started dating Carol, I really wasn't a Christian. We both, I, so truth be told, full disclosure, I wouldn't have married Carol and I. Uh, just as a pastor, I wouldn't. We were unequally yoked, right? I know, it's absolutely crazy. It's the grace of God is what it is. Um, I can't perform my own marriage, I guess is what it comes down to. But, but when I said that I was a Christian, she said she was a Christian. It didn't take long for me to see there was a significant difference between her being a Christian and me being a Christian. She'd be the first to admit that she did not walk things out perfectly. But there was a difference with her life that was enviable. There was a, there was a solidness to it. There was a steadfastness to it. There was a joy to it. Uh, that, that was attractive to me. She was attractive. Her faith was actually attractive. And what it did was it revealed in me that really I had no faith. Or whatever my faith was, was a, was a real poor substitute of what hers was. There was an enviableness to what she understood and what she believed. I found it drawing me to God, which it in fact did do. That is to be the way we walk. That our joy is to be of such sweet measure that people are drawn to the one that we draw the joy from. There's an enviableness that we are to create, not create, that we are to walk out a joy, and God will use that for the furtherance of his people and his name. Okay, the last thing I would say is this, that this unfolding mystery, uh, that God intends for you to have a joy that is beyond measure. Uh, notice when I reference that it's like life from the dead. God is giving us a picture of when he wraps all things up, it'll be like life from the dead. Now, you have to think about this, right? Because nobody here has been dead. You don't know what life is like from the dead because you haven't been dead. But you can imagine, and I want you to imagine with me what life will be like from the dead. Because what, what Paul is encouraging us with is this unfolding ministry, you have a future. The Christian here has a future that is really immeasurably glorious, spectacular. And the only way that I can really even draw an analogy for you to make more sense of it um, is simply this way. If you think about your life in the womb, uh, you're a male, female, you're in the womb of your mother. It, it seems safe, it seems good. That's all you know. It's warm, you're nourished, it's beautiful. Who would want to leave that? But it's upon the birth that when the child is brought forth into this world. Can you imagine the difference between the existence of life in the womb and then life on the earth? 
Your eyes are open to mountains and seas and, and oceans and, and the sky and trees and flowers and the beauty. I mean, the difference in life from existence in a womb that seems so safe and secure to now I get to see all of God's creation and other human beings with me. I, I, I mean, it, it's, the, the difference is incredible. And it'll leave me greater for us. It'll be like life from the dead. It'll be like being birthed into all that God wants you to have. This is what Paul's encouraging the church with. I mean, to think of, this isn't going to come to you as you're, as you're driving down the road. This requires you to think and to consider it. So when God unfolds this mysterious plan, you're just left. God, you're incredible. You're absolutely incredible. Whom have I in heaven but you? And what on earth do I desire besides you? Nothing. So that's what Paul's saying here. He's telling these Gentiles, this is what God's done. This is how you Gentiles have come to faith. And then he turns, 17 to 22. He says, here's the attitude you ought to have. And he moves to very practical exhortations for this Gentile church. It was a Gentile church and a Jewish church, right? There were Jewish believers in the church, but predominantly Gentile. And he's going to tell them first that they are to be humble, not to be arrogant. Listen, most scholars think there was probably some anti-Semitism beginning to creep up in the church. Anti-Semitism has really marked the church in every generation. It's an absolute shame. It should have no place. And that's what he's getting to in 17 and 18. He said you ought to be humble. You've been grafted in. Look at me at 17 and 18. He says, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. So he's saying to them, hey, be mindful. You may be more in number. You may have the majority as Gentiles. Uh, don't be arrogant to those branches who are broken off. Don't look down upon those, those Jews that were broken off or that, that were hardened. You have been grafted in. Now, it's unusual to graft a wild olive shoot into a trained olive tree. It's usually the other way around. Wild olive shoots tend not to be as fruitful. So why is, And you see it in verse 24. If you look down, you see that it's contrary to nature. Why is God doing something that's contrary to nature? I think he's trying to wake us up. Trying to wake the Gentile up to say, you don't realize how crazy this is that you are now grafted into this olive tree. That you are now grafted and you now have all the promises of Abraham. All the inheritance that's coming to the children of Abraham, you have. You don't know how crazy that is. Now this olive tree, there's a lot of debate about what the olive tree is. I would say it's true Israel. I would say it's Abraham and his spiritual descendants that you're grafted into this olive tree. You're now part of that, that expression I was giving you, that it's the new people of God, the church in this era, it was Israel before. You're grafted into the tree. We have no place for arrogance or pride. That's why he says, you are not nourishing the root. The promises of God given to Abraham are nourishing you. You are part now with a people. You are now the new people of God. And you've been grafted in. You were a guest. That's why we sang that song today. Sweet and awful. Why was I a guest? Why was I invited? That's the question we ask. You know, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells that parable. If you remember, he talks about if you're going to have a party, 
He says, don't just invite your friends to the party. Anybody can do that. The pagans do that. Invite the sick. Invite the lame. Invite the weak. Invite the cripple. That's what he says. And he tells them a parable. He says, there's a great landowner that threw a party, and he invited his guests. A big, big, big party. He invites his guests, and, and then he sends his servants out a few days later. You know, back then, to throw a party like that, it would take days to prepare. And so then you'd send your servants out to say, hey, all the food's ready. Come to the party. And people began to decline the invitation. They said, that. I just bought a field. Hey, I just got married. Just bought five oxen. I don't have time to come. And then the master of the house gets angry and he says, go out into the highways and the byways and invite everyone you see. Invite the lame, the broken, the sick, the weak, the infirmed. That's us. That's the parable. The parable is we're the riffraff. We're the folks that weren't originally invited. We've now been brought in. Why were we guests? Because he's mercy. He's merciful. Remember, pride is a Pride is a terrible thing. Spiritual pride is really a wicked thing because it helps us to forget who we are. We forget our roots. So he's saying here, when you hear this unfolding mystery of God, walk in humility, pursue humility. It is a struggle, but you have to pursue it, remembering why was I a guest? Ask yourself that. Secondly, I think he calls us to fear that there is a place of holy fear. Look with me in 19 and 20, because Paul kind of begins this diatribe. He's kind of putting in the mouth of this kind of opponent. He says, then you will say to me, the branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. He's putting the words of the Gentiles into this argument. They're kind of saying, hey, they were broken off. God was done with them. I'm part of the tree now, so I'm here. And Paul says, well, it is true. They were broken off, but it was because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud, but fear. So Paul's telling us to recognize that if we've been grafted in, it is by faith. And the faith that you have in Christ is a gift of God. You know, Paul says this in Ephesians. He says we've been saved by grace. This is not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. It, referring to faith, it's a gift of God. So we hold fast by faith. We are not our, our are being united to the tree, to the olive tree, is faith. It's a gift of God. It's grace. We ought to fear. It's a holy fear. When I'm speaking about a Christian fear, I'm not trying to create anxiety in you over the future. I don't want to create uncertainty over the salvation that you have. I think that there is a holy fear that actually kills pride and presumption. This idea of fear is recognizing that God is beyond measure. That he has gifted us with a measure of faith to believe and to be saved. And we ought to tremble before him. Do you ever, do you ever sense in deep measure your absolute need for him and his daily mercy? Mercy every morning? Do you wake up and it's so intuitive to slip into, I've got this life down. I've been doing it. I got it. I understand what to do. And yet it's every morning we need to think about, it. if I don't have his mercy for my breath, I won't live. Do you ever think that way? Do you ever say like the man in Mark 9 that said, I believe, help my unbelief? You're ever brought to that place of just absolute God, you're in another class? You know, there was this... Um, when I was in seminary, there was this re-imaging conference, uh, reimagining, you could really call it. it. It was all these talks giving on discoveries of who God is. God was, 
In some talks, God was more feminine. He was more of a woman. And God was more, it just came up with, they were re-imaging who God might be. Uh, they were considering new thoughts on God, and they were trying to espouse it to the church. They were re-imaging God. We don't re-image God. I often hear people say, I, I don't believe in a God like that. I believe that he's loving, and he's kind, and he's generous. And you know what? He is actually all those things. But he's also holy, and he's also righteous, and he's also, he, he's also true to his character. We don't want to re-image God. We don't want to cast him in our image. We want to recognize that he is holy and righteous. There is a place for holy fear, a reverence, a, a, a loving reverence for God. And then the last response I think that Paul gives to us, the last attitude that we should have to this unfolding mystery is, is a persevering spirit, uh, steadfast. Look at me in 22. In 22 he says, Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. This is intimidating language, that we're to continue in his kindness. You know, there is a, there is a steadfastness that the Christian, when you become a Christian, and this is important for all of us to remember, uh, that the Christian life is not sedentary. It isn't, I've accepted Jesus, I have a certain knowledge of God, and, and now I kind of power down and just participate as a spectator in the things of God. You have to continue in his kindness, and you do this by, by considering his severity. Did you notice what Paul says? He says, take note on the severity of God. He's saying, pay attention. Consider the severity of God, his holiness, his righteousness. If you think about the judgment of God in the flood, if you think about the judgment of God as he's brought kings down, as he's brought nations to nothing, it's good to consider. Considering the severity of God drives me to God for mercy. It drives me to God to continue in his kindness to me. For me personally, thinking on the cross is the, is the most beautiful picture of considering the severity of God in the judgment upon Christ for sin and the mercy of God that he would forgive the lame and the poor and the broken like us. There is no center. We have to continue in faith. We have to continue in faith. Now, you read this and you say, well, hold it now. I, I thought Romans 8 assured me that there is nothing that could separate me from the love of God. And now there's this threat of being cut off. What do I do with that? How do I hold on to this assurance? And yet now I hear these warnings of being cut off. What do I do with that? Well, I think it's God's mercy to put them together. Therefore, our good. You, you know, the ultimate and final salvation comes for those who do persevere in faith. Persevering in faith is a condition of your salvation. It's not a basis. You're not saved because you have persevered. But persevering in faith is a condition. It's always present for those who are being saved. That you persevere in a faith, by the way, a faith that God is sustaining all the time. That God is fueling, inventing, and giving life to. There's that tension that I don't want to remove. Because we're all called to persevere. This is what f causes me the greatest fear 
as a pastor is seeing the Christian go dormant. Because he should not rest in great confidence. He shouldn't use these promises as tools to remain dormant, languishing in faith. That should not, uh, the doctrine of election should not help him in that. Like one author said it this way, true believers take this to heart and stand in awe. They fear. They tremble at how fragile and how dependent they are. How quick to sin and how prone they are to wander. The pretenders don't tremble. They don't stand in awe over these warnings. They may even use these promises to ignore these texts. So we have this unfolding plan of God that he hardens Israel to draw in the Gentiles. The Gentiles, overjoyed in their faith, draw in those of Israel that God has foreknown. Those who are drawn in stand humble, in fear, a godly fear, not a, tra- not a scared fear. He is our Father, but He is our Father. And so there is a righteous, a right fear. And then there's a perseverance, a steadfastness. If you have been, have you been presuming upon God? I have to ask you this. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, have you presumed on, upon God? I mean, ha- have you just moved casually in the faith? Have you been dormant? Have you not continued in his kindness? And may I urge you to do so. Repent of kind of a, uh, no, it's going to be fine for me. It's going to be fine for me. Repent of that and seek grace that you might long for his glory, that you might long to move with endurance. And and for those who are here and and you, you have never come to faith, uh, may I encourage you to consider uh, the promise of God that all those with faith in Christ will be saved. Uh, apart from Christ, there is a hardening, an incremental hardening of your soul that will leave you outside in the wilderness forever. And it'll be something that would be difficult to describe to you. This is why we're fasting each month. You know, we are, we are fasting this month. We're going to do, of course, our corporate fast here again on, on Monday night after dinner. If you can do a full fast. If not, I would encourage a fast of social media, perhaps, or television, or a fast from your electronics. Um, but it's going to begin on Monday night, and it will go through and, and be broken for dinner on Tuesday Uh, This focus, the fast of this focus, will be delighting in the Son of God. Uh, We want to pray, and we want to fast. Remember now, fasting is going without food or going without something. It isn't to punish ourselves. It's not to make us sacrifice so that God will love us. It's not for that. It's really to show us our dependence on God. It's really to cultivate in us this awareness of, I can't even go a few hours without my stomach screaming for attention. God, I need you. I want you to be what those hunger pains are. I want you to satisfy me. And so there's going to be a delighting in the sun that we're looking for. In other words, we're asking for, give me a confident joy in all the work that Jesus has done. God, give me a longing that I might see him. Particularly those of you who are in the sweetest spot of life, remember, the time with him will even be better. God, would you give us a longing? Would you cause us to hate our sin that he paid for? 
Would you give us a growing desire to be like Christ? Would you give us a growing desire to share this Christ with others? So this is what we're fasting for. We want more of Christ. We want to be happy in life because of Christ, not because of the changing circumstances. So we'll do that this Tuesday. So let's take a minute now and just ask God for grace and wisdom as we just consider these words. It's only a few moments that we sit here quietly together, but ask God for wisdom and grace, perhaps conviction of sin or help to believe. And I'll pray for us in a moment.